Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Bill Cummings on the show. Bill is a Merced-based real estate developer and CEO of Legacy Construction, which is focused primarily on healthcare and mixed-use development projects. At Legacy Construction, Bill serves as the visionary for the company, as well as managing the day-to-day operations. He moved here from Washington, D.C. to Fresno, California in 2006 and created Legacy Construction around that time. In addition to Legacy Construction, Bill co-owns Legacy Realty and Development, Legacy Commercial, First Resource Consulting, and Soccer City 1852 Visalia. He is a licensed California real estate broker and holds an active general A&B contractor's license. We cover a wide variety of topics in this conversation, and I ultimately walked away with a much better understanding of the state of construction and development in Central Valley. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best! Bill, where do you like to eat in Fresno? You know, my favorite spot is, uh, you know, I love the Mad Duck guys. You know, when I first moved out here from Virginia, I was after college and and I ended up meeting a lot of the Mad Duck guys playing soccer in town. I remember helping them build their first project over there at Willow and Herndon. And then as they've grown, we actually built their uh, brewery on Fresno State's campus. But just a, a good place, whether it's hanging out with the family or doing a little work lunch, you know, well-located. And then I tell you what, I absolutely love, love the spicy shrimp tacos from Don Pepe's. Uh, you got the original one over there on Blackstone, and then they got the new one where they took over Steak Shack down by uh, Walmart on Kings Canyon. And I, I would travel long distances for those spicy shrimp tacos. Those are mm. still amazing. Yes, I love those shrimp tacos as well. Let's go back to Mad Duck, though. Mad Duck, sometimes I struggle to know what to order because there's so many options. <laughs> where, where is the best lane uh, on that menu? You know, it's it's kind of funny. I, I'm sort of, I, I'm a big foodie, you know, and, and um, you know, I, I'm definitely a consumer in that sense. I'll walk in there and I love to order uh, their steak bites and a lot of their appetizers. Their wings are delicious. They're, uh, they're kind of chicken cheese dip. So I think it's a lot of fun to go in there and order a lot of apps great salads, which are awesome. And then they've also started to put on some different, uh, more, more dinnery type style meals. But one of the things I actually do like every couple months, uh, we do like a special dinner with them where they come in and we give the, uh, the chef Mario an opportunity to, to do something amazing. And I've been lucky enough to be in a couple of those dinners and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to see the the range, but I honestly, I, I hate to be the guy that says this every time, everything's really good there. You know, they just, they, they're a bar, but they've really become a food forward location. And it's, it's a lot of fun to, to try their specials and, and uh, you know, never disappoints the traditional favorites. And if a place to, if a place has attention to detail, that means they can do most things well. So that's, that's, you know, I think there's an assumption sometimes, and I have this assumption that there's like a, you know, and I, I do this when I go to like Indian food or something where I'm like, what's the thing that people don't order that they should be ordering? That's uh, always what I ask. But sometimes you're right. There are places where you can just show up and close your eyes and put your finger somewhere on the menu and you'll be fine. Um, well, you're lucky that you have a significant other that allows you to eat Indian food. You know, I, I actually live in Merced now and 
you know, Fresno had, had its limitations on food and, and Merced's even worse. And so I love ethnic foods. I love Indian food and Vietnamese and, and all sorts. I actually lived over in Saudi Arabia. I lived in Japan. I lived a lot of places growing up and, and my wife just really isn't into Thai really. She, she really loves Mexican American, more traditional foods. And, and uh, pretty much our joke is every time she goes out of town, she knows that I'm going to be watching some form of cartoons or something stupid and, and ordering Indian food from DoorDash. <laughs> That's perfect. All right. So let's jump into construction stuff. So I've got a bunch of questions for you. Um, and the kind of the big topic or heading over all this is uh, challenges and opportunities in building where we are in the Central Valley. Uh, let's talk about zero energy offices, first of all. There's kind of a backdrop, and I've talked about climate change and changing temperatures and the needing and the need uh, to move to efficiency style buildings. So what are some of the challenges with trying to create you know, net zero or, or energy efficient buildings, particularly in the Central Valley where it is so hot? Well, I think the first issue is is as Title 24 energy efficiency and a lot of the stuff becomes more and more rigid, existing buildings become less and less viable. You, you can't go into an existing office that was even built a couple of years ago and reuse the existing air conditioning units, the ductwork, a lot of the stuff that, that cost of value. And so, so what you're seeing is just a push in, in higher prices because pretty much everything has to get redone. And and in a lot of ways, I, I completely understand the energy efficiency and the zero energy direction. But um, and it's a lot easier, obviously, with new construction. But one of the things, especially in healthcare, with what we do, it's it it makes the project so much more expensive because whatever's in there that you're paying for in order to have the opportunity for the building, you're just ripping out. You know, I've done a lot of I've done some really cool projects where we used affordable housing, sustainable communities dollars, and they had a a net zero uh, goal. And you know, it was it was doing things like idling reports where cars could only be on for so long, uh, turned on while they're on the site. And, you know, you go from just the traditional recycling space to having five or six different types of recycling in order to increase your efficiency. And so generally speaking, I feel like the challenges are more in the remodels, you know, for, again, for new construction, you know, as hot as it gets around here, it's still a very temperate climate. You know, we're licensed in about 22 states, you know, so when we go to Florida, when we go to Oregon, when we go to a lot of other places where there's a lot more water, a lot more hills that you're building on, it really changes a lot of the building types. And so generally speaking, you know, stucco construction, wood stick construction, a lot of the things that are prevalent in our markets are because we have a very temperate market. It's becoming more and more rigid though. So as as code continues to go, more and more efficient mechanical systems need to be used, LED lighting and a lot of the other things are requirements and and it just becomes more and more challenging to to get to that uh, level that you're needed in order to pass current code. So it sounds like the presence of water in, in climates that are maybe a bit more humid affects the building envelope substantially more than our dry climate, even though it's what people perceive as being extremely hot and so hard to keep things energy efficient. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. So next thing I want to talk about is, is uh, labor. How have you navigated the skilled labor shortage in particular where we are in the Central Valley? Well, I would say that unequivocally, it is the number one limiting factor to our growth. I would be twice as big right now if I could hire superintendents and project managers and other administrative staff that were plug and play that I can move in and just just grow. You know, so many of the people that I'm hiring to, to in order to address the issue you mentioned are people that are not in that position that I need to mold and grow into that position. And, and it just takes time. 
And that time results in less efficiencies and and just my ability to not take on more business. You know, right now I'd say so so legacy's got three distinct kind of buckets. We're a commercial real estate firm, we're a real estate and development entity, and then we're a commercial construction company. And so we're developing about twice as much as we're building because I can't hire superintendents, I can't hire project managers, and I can't scale that side of the business as quickly as I can scale the development. Do you see that as an education problem or a talent mismatch? I know that there's a lot of issues and there's been a lot of great uh, books that have come out recently about uh, talent mismatch and we can't link the talent to the industry. What what do you perceive as the source of the problem? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, you know, we do a lot with uh, different educational groups in town. We work with the construction management uh, department over at Fresno State. We work with an amazing school called SeaTech, which is actually uh, like a charter school that's that's construction oriented. And it's so much that the teachers actually come work with me in the summertime to learn actual business and, and what's going on in order to better educate the kids. I think it's it's just, we have so few people in our market that are educated to that point. And there's so many opportunities for them to, to go. It's just really hard to get someone to focus on the areas that are needed. And the second part to that is, is I, I don't necessarily believe in all the curriculum that's coming out in a lot of these different programs. There's a certain amount of uneducation that needs to happen once they come out because what they're learning in books is just not relevant to what real life is. And then couple that with COVID and a lot of the other built environment changes that have happened over the last couple of years, really what I'm looking for are the soft people skills. You know, I'm looking for organization. I'm looking for reliability. And at Legacy, you know, we have got a very very outgoing corporate culture. I'm, I'm not a corporate guy and I really like the more family atmosphere and, and building sort of something that has this harmony. And so I'm really looking for people that are going to fit into that, that, that mold and that, that, that kind of line so that, that we can grow together and, and kind of get there. And, and one more step to that is, you know, my, uh, in our real estate development side, we use something called development managers and, and development managers goals are to, to create a sense of urgency and take a project from project concept through issuance of permits. And it's been sort of a running case study in our office where I have one development manager that was a very accomplished general contractor for 34 years. And I had to teach him the development side and finance. I, I took a residential real estate agent and had to teach her commercial construction and, and portions of that. I took a finance person and tried to teach them this. And, and to be honest, you know, what's really made the difference has really been the, the, the people and the, the personal traits as far as just go-getter attitudes and ability to talk to people. But it's, it's really hard to find really quality individuals that have everything that we need. And so it's, it's, uh, I, I would welcome any suggestions on how I could better train and, and help the, the local area to find more people because I surely would love to grow more. Well, it seems like what you're describing would make possible lateral movement for people that maybe are working in another industry that have uh, similar <laughs> skills. I guess I too was, uh, I was also thinking about people that are uh, trade workers too. Is there also a shortage in that as well? And in, in, in the kind of the construction crews that you need in order to complete a job? No doubt. I mean, I, all my subcontractors, I talk to a lot of them often and they struggle finding skilled electricians, plumbers, air conditioning guys. Like it's just, skilled technicians, you know, mechanical systems in particular, when you go back to the energy efficient C portion of it, we're, we're installing systems that are called VRF systems and they are extremely technical, but they are extremely efficient. 
and and they allow you to basically recycle heat and and they're great but there's so many opportunities to to mess up the installation and and it's such an expensive system that it's 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 again it very much limits the the pool that's out there but but again laborers um i see it across the board with rising prices i just i can't find subcontractors that are calling me back on a regular basis and you know we're building 10 20 million dollar projects and it's hard to get a call back sometimes that's so wild and i i work in education field and we we have similar issues with teacher shortages and what the district has chosen to do is is kind of similar to what you're describing which is hire whoever we can get and then train them uh but then you know <laughs> you have situations where once you train them then they leave to move on to some other industry which is natural that's what happens in all industries but it it is uh it seems like that's the only thing we can do at this point is just take what we have and try to work with it uh well, which is was... not ideal and I would say to that is one of the things that we're doing to try and, and help with that is is we are we actually built a custom Salesforce CRM that is acting as our software management tool. And so I try to install systems that give people the ability to be themselves and 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 especially from a task management perspective. But it allows me to sit down with them at the beginning, create a game plan, have a central repository for all data. I have a, ta- a transaction coordinator that comes in. And she's able to put all the documents together for each project. And, and we have a very specific system of how we move forward. And it it allows me to, to give more latitude to these people earlier, knowing that they have a good idea about what needs to happen and 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 get there. Because to your point, you know, there's so many variables in what we're doing, and it just requires so much leadership to get to the end. It it's just it's it's taxing and it's tiring and it it really limits the ability of of the amount of work that we can do. Well, you hit on my next topic, which is technology. Um, a, a market research company said this statement, and I'll let you respond to it. The construction industry, it quote, is behind compared to other industries when it comes to using and adopting new technologies, and that will prevent future growth. Uh, do you agree with that? And how are you adapting to that challenge? So a lot, I, I do agree with that. A lot of construction companies use software management tools like Procore, or um, there's a lot of them that are out there. It's great for construction. And it's great for certain sizes. So, but we're a development company as well. They didn't have a software management tool for development. And so over the course of the last two years and many, many dollars, we have been working with a software development firm out of Dallas, Texas to customize a commercial real estate kind of add-on that that works in a C- Salesforce CRM to be a software management tool that's going to allow us to scale 10, 20x. And so my goal is to be building 50, 100 health centers across you know California and the United States. And I just not going to be able to do that without multiplying myself. And so by utilizing technology and different software management tools, we're able to do that. And my hope is that one day, you know, people are going to come work with legacy because they want the proprietary software that we've created. And it's nice to be able to give your clients a login and they see all of the projects. They, they know that this is where all the schedules are going to be. This is where all the information is. This lists down to the detail of, of who the lead from each, you know, civil and architectural and design firm they use for particular projects. And so as we go out and we look for these multi-facility expansion opportunities with these different groups, having something that allows you to 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 build on each project is so important than trying to reinvent the wheel every single time. 
And so, so you can you can kind of duplicate services and, and and scale that way. And it seems like we're talking about the same problem from two different directions. You know, the the skilled labor being one side, and then the technology being the other side. And I think that's two different ways of uh, attacking this problem of having a lot of work to do and not having the resources to accomplish all of it. It's exactly right. You know, we've we've grown from almost five staff to about sixty staff currently, and and again, it's it's we have we are just so limited by the workforce that we have and so we work with the local workforce uh, department about how we can do vocational training for certain people we've got um a lot of plans within the company for to promote growth you know we've we've tried to standardize a lot of things in order to to bring people in and make them want to be here and and again really try to differentiate ourselves as a company than a lot of the other uh, more traditional commercial construction firms that are out there. And, and again, trying to retain that talent and be a, be a spot that in particular, a lot of the, the, the newer people with a lot of energy want to, to go and work at, because, you know, we're building an amazing projects. These health centers are, are great and they make such an impact in these communities. And, and they're the types of projects that I, I think are, are, scalable because we are building within the same lane over and over again. Yes, there's a lot of different nuances, but but with the right software management tools, with the right organizational uh, stuff at the company and with repeat clients, you know, it's really where we're starting to see some some great uh, efficiencies and, and being able to to really improve the the duration of our time to to get projects complete. Okay, two more wonky questions before we jump into some of the medical <laughs> buildings that you're working on. So the first one is, why are yields so much higher in commercial construction than residential? I guess it really depends on where you're looking. Because if you look at yields in San Francisco and, and whatnot on different projects, it's all based on the risk profile. Um, you've actually seen this large shift with a lot of the larger city dollars coming to the Central Valley looking to chase yields, where the opportunity to buy property at a really low rate and build at a reasonable rate with with what the value can be based with the the proper leases there's still that 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 margin that people are looking for most commercial developers are looking for a 200 basis point spread so at least a two, like 2% difference between the return and then what they're going to sell it for and so that's achievable in markets where the property values are are less but to your question, what is the reason for higher yields? I think in commercial, you've also got higher, better credit tenants, which are reducing the risk for those, those things. Uh, you also have exact uh, some things like 1031 exchange dollars that come into play. But you know, residential typically is also a lower price point. So you're going to have a lot more buyers for it. But, but typically... Um, I'm bringing it up because one of a, 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 a huge problem in California is the amount of housing that we have available. And so, and, you know, the, if there's lower returns on residential housing, you know, it seems like that it could be a factor in why we have such, uh, I mean, obviously there's zoning and there's a lot of issues that are going into pr preventing us from either building more housing or expanding areas for housing. But um, it was just something that kind of stuck in my mind that it could be a factor at play. Next question, why does construction not benefit from economies of scale? Why are things so expensive no matter how big you build them? Well, I think I think there are economies of scale, but the size of projects that are achieving those economies and the project the companies that are getting those are are dealing with projects that are much larger than we find in the Central Valley. You know, the, the projects that that we're working on around here I would argue that, you know, from a material perspective, 
you, you don't really get many benefits from from buying in bulk. I mean, sometimes you can buy metal better, you know, when you have better payment terms by making payments to your suppliers earlier, you can get some things. But I think that due to the the lack of projects, the the and the basically the supply chain, you know, they are controlling prices and and um you know, that's why you're not seeing an opportunity to go buy 20 mechanical units and and make it happen. Um, I also think California Building Code has changed such that they change so often. It's it's not a scenario where you can go out and buy enough of something at a price point that you're going to do it. It's really more of a, a point, you know, you're buying at a specific point. I had a recent project where, you know, we had a, a switchgear electrical system that was originally supposed to be delivered three months and then it was six months and then it became, it's, it's a year out. For, for a single piece of electrical equipment. It's more of a specialized piece, but but it's just due to the fact that it's it's really challenging for people to make these and then get it over here. And, and so again, for the projects that are gonna be larger where you can buy in bulk, that it's it's there. I do think you pick up efficiencies like in tract homes, you know, you see it in other types of commercial construction like that. But but when you get out of that residential opportunity or or maybe some of the more generic medical office or general office that's out there, you know, just there's not enough of one thing that that's happening. It's probably the same reason that if you go into a fancy furniture store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and you buy a, a table that's just a standalone table that one craftsman made, it's expensive because you're designing something to the specifications of the buyer track homes. You could just pump them out. Um, but if you're building a skyscraper, or a new Trump Tower, <laughs> you know, you're gonna you're gonna have to build to the specificities of your of your client. All right, so let's jump into medical buildings. Uh, what do you attribute to the surge in the demand for healthcare building construction? So, one of the things that we learned a long time ago was we needed to be able to quantify need in order to really justify our development. And so one of the things that Legacy has is we have a data company. And so we're able to analyze markets, competitors, opportunities in order to define how big of a site you should build, which services you should offer. What are the population trends that are going to be happening so that we're sizing this building for the future and not today? And so the, the data portion of it allows us to go in and, and showcase this unbelievable need. And I mean, I would say about five years ago, there were over 350,000 people in the city of Fresno and Clovis that were income eligible and unserved by a community health center. Mm -hmm. You know, when you when you look at that from an, uh, a facility perspective, that's almost 60 facilities that needed to be constructed in order to meet the demand today. And so when I'm looking around and I'm looking for opportunities to to grow as a company, the reason I like healthcare is one, you know, they're not they're they're more resistant to interest rate changes like we're seeing in the market right now um, because of the necessity of the services that they provide. And then also when catastrophic things happen like COVID, it, it showcases the how frail our healthcare infrastructure is. And it just showcases the need for for more facilities, more preventative healthcare, and and a lot of the things in order to improve access to patients here in the valley. How are you adapting how you construct medical buildings with what we've learned from COVID. Um, so there's a couple, uh, there's many lessons that we've learned from COVID. One, uh, having single waiting rooms for everyone maybe doesn't make sense in the future, given what we understand about hygiene and preventing spreading. Uh, but two, uh, we've also learned that we need adaptable, adaptable medical rooms that can pivot uh, based on need. 
Um, how do you think about that in terms of designing? So one of the things that we've been designing recently are these sort of pods at the different facilities we build. The pods serve as an urgent care pod, but also a specialty care pod. And so the pods themselves have their own mechanical systems, so they're not contaminating other parts, uh, their own entrance. Typically, a lot of times we put their own waiting room in or some some sort of different piece so that um, if there is a pandemic or if there is a situation where a patient needs to be isolated, they can walk into this and not contaminate the rest of the building. And so building things like that um, really help. The types of mechanical systems, a lot of the facil facilities we're building are Oshpod in, in uh, code and they have these tremendous filter banks that that and cycling requirements of the air. So again, better understanding that and utilizing those. I think the pods are really what you're after as far as something that COVID sort of brought about. Um, the other thing is, you know, we're, we're developing, so, so telemedicine is this whole new world. There were things that happened during COVID that allowed health centers to bill for telemedicine as if it was a normal patient visit. Since COVID, they've sort of rescinded some of those to where the providers are not getting paid the same amount of money to see someone via telehealth as, as they'd see in, 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 uh, in, in real life. And so in a lot of situations, that makes sense. But when you have situations like school-based health centers, where it just doesn't make sense to put a doctor out there at all time, if you have um, smaller um, sites where, where they're located in neighborhoods where you're trying to provide really easy access. If you have specific sites at different, um, so we've done a lot of wellness centers is what we call them, where we go to larger manufacturing and, and agricultural usually oriented, uh, uh, companies that have thousands of employees and it's, it's typically cheaper and provides a higher quality if we put a health center on these these people's site. But again, from a, from an economic standpoint, the op, putting a full-time doctor there might not make sense. And so being able to staff it with an MA or an NP or, or sort of a mid-level and allowing them to telework in a provider has really helped um, allow some of these more remote satellite sites be, be there. I know there was a big push to make hospitals more attractive than the exterior. You know, we had a lot of <laughs> uh, brutalist style uh, architecture when it came to hospital buildings, a lot of concrete. And um, so how do you think about the exterior of your medical buildings? So we learned a long time ago that a happier staff, a, a staff that that believes in what they're doing, that enjoys coming to work, has nice facilities, is going to yield a better patient experience. And so you'll find with almost all of our health centers, you know, these are class A, beautiful medical office buildings that look like they're straight out of Palo Alto. And and it's just they're meant to be because you know there's a sense of branding, but then there's also just a sense of pride that's associated with that. And again, I think when you build these nicer spots and it doesn't take that much more money to make a beautiful break room, you know, or to add a, um, you know, do different things for the providers in their offices. But if it allow some of it's even just electric vehicle charging stations for some of the more rural communities and having someone be able to pull up and, and have a nice covered parking stall to do it. A lot of these things are what we're working with our different healthcare operators in order to allow them to attract more doctors and, and have a better staff experience, which ultimately translates to a better patient experience. Right. And that's like a big factor too, right? Is, is retaining these, you know, cause we got all these traveling nurses that come through to try and fill the deficits in the different spots in our local hospitals. And I, I, I think people tend to downplay the aesthetics because 
they, you know, it's, it's, it's medical buildings. It's, it's a, it's a utility thing, but I think you're so right on about if you, if you, in, if what you have around you is beautiful every day, you want to show up. You don't want to take that remote job because you like the building that you're working in. Absolutely. And then, you know, to take it a step further in sort of the more rural communities, you know, we built a really beautiful office in Huron and, you know, in those communities, we need to be a spot where we can we can serve both the farm workers and the farm owner. And so we need to have a really welcoming environment that that is bilingual and 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 is comfortable for for people. And and I, I think there's a certain sense too that you know a lot of the health centers we build, although they do serve a lot of the low income population, it's not poor person care. They're not looking to provide an inferior quality of care. In fact, they are trying to leverage the dollars that they're getting to provide a, an opportunity for these people to come in more often. And, and a lot of what they're doing is trying to, to build preventative care where, where we can keep people out of the emergency departments and, and do things that are going to really make a meaningful change to these communities instead of just coming to the doctor when you're sick. Absolutely. All right. We're going to jump into my favorite section called overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of ideas, people, concepts at you. You tell me whether you think they're over or underrated. Feel free to pass. Uh, first one, uh, East Coast beaches, over or underrated? Underrated. Why? Well, I'm from Virginia, Washington, D.C. I grew up on the East Coast for a large portion of my life. I still, to this day, can't get over how cold water is on the West Coast. <laughs> and I, I mean, I grew up going to Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and and again, it, and then my mom's from New Jersey. I, I have an affinity for it. I, I love the the fact that when I'd go from Virginia to New Jersey, I have to go through three or four states to get there. And um, but like I said, for me, the real difference is I just like the water temperature. And uh, it, you know, you don't need a full body wetsuit to get in there. All right, next one. Uh, track homes over underrated. I think track homes are underrated, and the reason I believe track homes are underrated is we have such a housing crisis around here. That is a that is a product type that we can get out. It's entry level. It's what we need in order to convert a lot of the renters into homeowners, which is which is really the direction we need to be moving. There was such a mass buying of of residential properties from commercial and larger institutions during this past pandemic that it's going to have rippling effects for years with with home ownership rates and you know with where rates are now and the affordability component of of this i think track homes are although they're not the most beautiful you know they're not the the sexiest type of thing to me a track home in california is a town home on the east coast you know it it's just uh it's an opportunity for people to to grow and move into the the ownership realm. Mm. And kind of correlated with that, what do you think of the housing variety as barrier to mass production hypothesis? This idea that people like to live in unique houses and that's why uh, we have such a, a problem because track homes are just unappealing. Do you believe that? or? I mean, I think generally speaking, people like what they like and they would love the opportunity to do that. But I think the economic reality of it is, is, is if we can deliver a product in a market that's already ridiculously expensive, you know, there's a certain economic component to, to this building that we need to take into account. And so, you know, maybe later on in life, or maybe they have a great job, maybe they're independently wealthy, you know, you have the opportunity to sort of to do that. But I would argue that a 
that a, a family of four on a fixed income and and people they would rather have more money to to go out and go to the movies and and go to nicer restaurants and travel and you can achieve that by having a lower uh lo- lower cost of of housing next one me and ed's pizza overrated okay explain i feel like in and out uh, me and Ed's, a lot of these West Coast institutions are people getting brainwashed from growing up in in this. Okay, world. well let's just let's just do it all then, because I was going to ask Shake Shack next. So, <laughs> would you rather go to Shake Shack or In and Out? Uh, Shake Shack. Okay, so, sell me. So, so I'd actually I'd go to Five Guys instead of. Oh, In-N-Out. okay, all uh, right. So that's just more of you know Five Guys started in Virginia. It's more of uh, what I would consider that. That um, it's just a higher version of of that. I'm also a little bit preferential to like McDonald's and some of the other things. You know, having grown up overseas a lot, you know, it was always nice. No matter what country I was in, no matter where you go to McDonald's and you're going to get a McDonald's burger. Anyways, I I think uh, you know In and Out and a lot of the West Coast based things are they're they're just they're okay. They're 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 good. <laughs> But okay, well, this this will be our strongest area of disagreement. All right, uh, next one: uh, historic preservation over underrated. Is that something we need to do more of? I I absolutely believe in historic renovations and restoration and and keeping the things that that are important to to what have made us uh, today. I think there is a bureaucratic component to this and 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 ultimately it's hard to put a big bo- one box around around that because there's plenty of historic buildings that that I find that I deal with that have no business being historic and and going back to what I said before it adds cost it adds and most importantly it adds time you know what time kills all deals and if you have to take 12 months to get through some crazy historic thing in order to be able to have the opportunity to build, and then it costs twice as much because you got to use period windows and, you know, something like that, it's, it, it, it changes the, the, the potential operators and tenants for, for these buildings. And so huge benefit. And, and I love historic buildings. One of my favorite, favorite projects ever was uh, we, we bought a building in Fowler that was condemned. And it was built in 1906 using bricks from the San Francisco earthquake. And over the last 90 years when we had bought it, it had been like 35 or 40 different businesses, including a Japanese market with tunnels underneath it during World War II. I mean, it was all sorts of stuff. It was so much fun bringing that back to life. And, and you know, it, we had to build a pre-engineered metal building inside in order to create the new structural system to be able to keep the old brick and repointing all of the, the mortar and going through all the different components to seismically retrofit the, the building. It's awesome. But without new market tax credits and some of the other subsidies we had to leverage, we never could have financially afforded to do it and and been able to, to be within the, the market appraised value. All right. Uh, just a few more. Boxable. Uh, drop a home on the ground and then fold it up and you got a house. I think I think modular homes are underrated. One of the things that that I've worked on has been, especially in these rural communities, is is homelessness and and how do we attack things like homelessness? You know, houses in a box, you know, tough sheds that could be converted with some sort of central facilities for for restrooms. Um, I think, again, we go back to we are truly living in a world that is so unaffordable for so many people. 
how do we give them a place where they can grow and and live and and have a sense of 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 home ownership and sense of that the accomplishment for what they're doing you know when we're able to really reduce the the, the cost you know it's it's a great way you know to the other point you know we were working with a city uh down in Dinuba to to develop some space around their golf course and we had come up with these amazing kind of house in a boxes that could be out there and they would be um VRBOs and short term rentals because there was nothing in the market and so it's basically a city sponsored opportunity for you know hotel ish type without having to go to that that extent and so it was a lower cost and it had also added a lot of value to one of their existing sort of lower density amenities next one uh, Chuck Chansey Park relative to other minor league stadiums. Oh, this is a loaded question. I know it is. <laughs> so Chuck Chansey Park is gorgeous, but it is 5,000 people too big, you know, and it was completely overbuilt. You know, unfortunately, it it led to increased costs of operations you know, there's just something to be said when 7,000 people show up and you have a 13,000 person stadium and you just don't have that feeling that it's a sellout. And yes, July 4th and, and you know, taco truck, uh, you know, throw down nights and other, you know, annual events were were great when we'd bring in the uh, the professional soccer teams from Mexico or MLS teams. It was awesome to have the extra space, but but on a normal day, if if that stadium had been closer to eight or nine thousand people, I think there would have been a, it would have provided a better experience. And and I would go far. You know, most NHL stadiums are eight to ten thousand people. You don't you don't. It's not until you get into soccer and and football stadiums and some baseball stadiums you get into that fifty sixty thousand. But but ultimately at the end of the day, it's a beautiful stadium with great amenities. Just just too big for our market. Mm. Do you think it'd be better served if it was an indoor stadium with a roof? given our given our temperature and when the baseball games tend to be played no i i think that um i think one of the things that's really hurt was you know a lot of the affiliation changes you know when my family owned the team for the years you know i would say nine of the 12 years we owned it we had the giants as our affiliate and there was a certain sense of camaraderie that came because a lot of those were that was the team that people grew up with we were very lucky when when we left the 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 Giants and moved to the Astros. You know, the Giants were great from the standpoint of uh, it provided a lot of you know, nostalgia for the people. But the Astros had just the most incredible AAA system, and so the quality of the players that were coming through the Astros system were were far superior to the Giants. Um, and and again, it was a lot of fun to watch these these monster guys roll up and you you see them on TV and you're like, uh, and then all of a sudden this guy from the Dominican Republic's six, four, and you're like, okay, I know why this dude's hitting 425 <laughs> yard. Home runs. Yeah. All right. Last one in the section, uh, living in a place with seasons over or underrated. Overrated. Okay. So um, because everyone in the Valley, they dream about those white Christmases and, you know, those the, the actual springtime, whereas we have just kind of cold and hot. You know, I I would I personally think the weather in Fresno and everything is one of my favorite things about it. Yes, there's that month or month and a half a year that's just abnormally hot and it's just it's really tough. But 
but you're going to have six months a year of rain and snow and and average weather and overcast through a lot of these other areas. Growing up in Virginia, um, it's actually funny. I asked my son this morning. I'm like, you've never had a snow day, huh? He's like, no. He's like, what's that? And I's like, whoa, well, that that is that's one of the benefits, but one of the only ones. I personally love the snow, but I love traveling to it for three or four days and then coming back to beautiful Fresno or somewhere where it's it's the nighttime temperatures are amazing. You know, there's the consistency, you know, there's not a lot of of climate control. And and quite frankly, we're so close to Tahoe, to Shaver Lake, to the coast, you know, and to other areas that have different climates that would fulfill those needs. It's really nice being in a in a temperature that's just I personally would rather be hot than cold. You know, I, I like wearing shorts most of the year. You know, I like I like being able to to drive on the highway as fast as I can because and not worry that it's raining and have to slow down. So again, I love the seasons and I think it's amazing, but I would argue it's much easier to travel to them and it's better to travel to them than than having to spend two or three months going through them. Yeah. You don't miss the days of shoveling snow as a kid. <laughs> no, right. I mean, by the time that you're done, it's already it snowed so much. You got to shovel it again. <laughs> All right. Uh, last two topics. Um, I just want to spend a moment here for you to kind of cast a vision and just kind of briefly uh, share where you feel like legacy uh, construction is going and some of the big projects that are kind of on the horizon that you are excited about. Uh, so just kind of giving us a vision of where you expect to see yourself going. Sure. Thank you. Um, you kind of to pull together a lot of what we talked about here, you know, efficiencies come in a lot of different ways. And so one of the efficiencies that I've tried to achieve with legacy is, is to be vertically integrated. You know, you see a lot of the, the traditional commercial construction companies that horizontally integrate by adding subcontractors and material suppliers to their businesses. But ultimately, they're still waiting for business and they have to bid on it. I went to, I, I have a firm belief that I never wanted to wait on anybody for business. And so I, I created this development and construction, this development firm, which from a project lifecycle handles a project from the initial concept through the issuance of permits. And, and the reason being is that so much goes into the design, so much go, so much data goes into the thought process of, of, of how big to build and, and whatnot. And typically you're waiting on an architect, you're waiting on a civil engineer, you know, you're waiting on a, a some sort of an expediter to take you through the city in order to, to get permits faster. You know, how do you handle issues with planning? And so I just found over time that, that although it wasn't as easy to, to horizontally integrate myself, I could open up a commercial construction firm that was going to help me acquire and dispose of the assets faster. I could hire a data company that, that would allow me to go to my clients and say, stop building two or three. That's, that's what you can build because that's what you think. The market says you should be building eight to 10. Here's the data to justify it. And let's use my platform to scale you to the point where you're going to grow based on the market instead of your capacity. And then I brought in a technology piece. And so we've got these amazing drones that will fly over different properties and stitch together a thousand pictures to create a, 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 a image that's measurable to a 16th of an inch. You know, we have cameras that go into existing buildings that allow us to create um, point clouds that, that download it right to AutoCAD or Revit so that we, again, we're not having to go out there and physically measure the width of walls and, and, you know, did we have to think, oh my gosh, did they have fire sprinklers, fire sprinklers in there or not? You know, and it, we're able to go back through our images and check it out. So again, through this vertically integrated model that 
it all funnels back to our construction company. You know, we're able to go out there and really help people where I feel like they need a lot of help, which is I've got this great idea, but I don't know how to make it a reality. And so by coming to them up front and being able to leverage our experience, the data that we have, and this amazing staff that's going to push these projects through, we're able to, to go to our clients on the end and say, you know, let us be a full service solution to you. Let us, let us be your actual partner instead of just a vendor or, a, or somebody that works for you. And so in doing that, you know, there's a vested interest you know, and, and we're able to come together and grow. And, and ultimately, Legacy is where it is today because of our partnership with United Health Centers you know, and, and their trust in us and their, their a desire to grow at a similar rate that we were you know, allowed us to, to partner and, and gave me the confidence and my partner and I the confidence to hire the staff and invest in the infrastructure and, and continue to grow our staff to meet these, these needs. Because when we look at the data, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are income eligible and unserved. Like there's no, there's no, Hey, we might need to stop building this health center tomorrow. It's like, how do I build health centers faster? You know, how do I get past all of these hurdles? And, and by bringing design in house, we do all of our own schematic design, site plans, floor plans, elevations, all of that. And we're able to then deliver that to the architects and deliver that to the different groups and, and avoid that, that period of, of introduction where, where a new architect needs to learn what our clients needs are. You know, we build really detailed spec books so that when we do meet with new vendors and, and again, it's all part of this process where if we invest enough time upfront, it's going to yield a better project at the end. And, and by, by doing it, like I said, that that's ultimately where I think legacy has grown and, and where we are now is, is, we were able to take those those smaller projects, make them larger, and then even a step further is it's become harder and harder to find the perfect parcel, or the perfect building for our clients. It allows us to come in and buy a larger parcel, complete a parcel map, and then we're able to develop the other parcels in conjunction to, with the health center to complement it in order to be able to, to find the best spots for our clients. Well, and as you were talking, I'm I'm reading this book called Working Backwards, and it's about kind of Amazon's approach to project management, essentially. And one of the concepts they have is this single threaded leadership where they they have a project and they want everyone along this kind of value chain that goes all the way up to the top. And it sounds like what you're describing as the leader of the company is is seeing all of these things moving in tandem in one direction and having clear a clear vision at the top and then just everyone knows what they need to be doing and starting with the clients first. So I think that's wonderful. Let's um, let's close with books. It's my favorite topic, books. What are a few book recommendations you'd have for the audience? Gosh, you know, I'm, uh, I definitely listen to more things and I read a lot of articles uh, uh, about stuff. I, I, I was kind of, sort of laughing with my media team when we were talking about this podcast, but you know, one of the most beneficial books. And I, I know this is going to come off terrible, but it's, it's the, the five love languages. And, and the reason I, I, I say it is that being the owner of a company with five people is very different than 30 and it's very different than 60. And, and I feel like my, my role as a leader has changed over time and to where a lot of me, what I do now is being a coach, you know, and, and my job is to get the best out of my team. And so understanding how people communicate, understanding what motivates them and, and understanding how to talk to them in order to get the most out of them is really 
and it, it kind of boils back to uh, a lot of the, the 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 kind of love languages. You know, do I need to go tell this person they're great? Do I need to give them a high five? Do I need to do I need to send them a small gift? You know, after this is done, is it just financial? You know, and and undergoing down and trying to do that, I think ultimately allows us to build a more personal relationship with each of our staff, and and goes back to that retainage and that that sort of family culture where you know I I think we live in a world where. I want to create this army of developers and contractors and people that are doing business the right way in order to change the landscape of Fresno and the Central Valley. You know, there's so many opportunities and we can't do it in doing it individually. And so if I, I, I challenge every one of my staff, get your real estate license, become a general contractor, I'll help you pay for it. And at the end of the day, you know, I don't need legacy to be where you live, you know, where you work for the rest of your life. I would love for you to go out and open your, your own business. Let's work together. Let's create an opportunity where you guys are going to be the best version of yourself for your families and for the community. And again, I think that's how, you know, we take Blackstone, which is just unfortunately blighted. And you look at all these properties that have this amazing opportunity. And, and there's a lot of case studies throughout the United States of other communities that have taken these traditional transit corridors and, and really transformed them. And, and again, that doesn't happen with just four or five developers are the only people doing that in a community. We need everybody coming together. We need more competition. We need to, and competition ultimately, I think is going to push prices down, you know, and it's going to make, it's going to create an opportunity for more projects to happen. And, and, and whatnot. Where can people find out more about like legacy construction online? So we have uh, an Instagram account, legacy Fresno um, on Facebook. It's, it's legacy construction. Um, I have an amazing media team that puts a lot of great product out there. We do a lot of stuff with data, um, a lot of community engagement. And uh, you know, we really try to, to give back to this amazing community that's given us so much. Thanks for doing this with me, Bill. I really appreciate it. Jordan, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time. Best.